Hi, my name is Jenny Kwong. And I'm Nathan Taylor. Welcome to ArtsLink on CJSW 90.9 FM in Calgary on Treaty 7 lands. So what do you have for this month, Nathan? Well, Jenny, this month I'm having a conversation with Bruce Zawalski. He is of the Boreal Wilderness Institute and has written an excellent book called Canadian Wilderness Survival. So I'll be talking to him and sort of picking his brains about some of the things I found interesting about uh, him and his career. And I will be talking to Brittany Nickerson, a photographer in Calgary, who will be starting a residency at Untitled Art Society starting in July. Welcome to CGSW. Thank you for having me. And so I guess, uh, first off, tell me about your background as a visual artist and uh, your upcoming um, residency at Untitled Art Gallery. Uh, For sure. So... um... I graduated from Alberta College of Art and Design, which is now known, of course, as AU Arts in 2014. Um, I did my Bachelor in Design with a specialization in photography. After that, I went to Vancouver uh, and did my Master's of Fine Arts uh, from Emily Carr University, which was an interdisciplinary-based program. Um, Mostly these days, uh, calling myself a lens-based media artist, so working with anything that has a lens. mostly collage and photography based. You will be having a residency at uh, Untitled Art Gallery mm-hmm. starting in July. So tell me about mm-hmm. that. Yeah, for sure. So um, for those of you not familiar with Untitled Art Society, they're one of the artist-run centers in town in Calgary. Um, artist-run centers are nonprofit charitably based art galleries focusing on contemporary art, in particular um, putting forward um, emerging artists and th- through exhibitions, workshops, and publications. Last year, Natasha Tchaikovsky, the director from Untitled Art Society, reached out to me about possibly having a residency there. Um, they were shifting their focus, it seems, to um, put forward not just exhibitions, but also have the artist in the space making the work throughout the three-month period. So I'll be starting the residency in July. I'm actually wrapping up another residency right now at uh, Calgary Allied Arts Foundation in C-Space. And the residency will conclude in October with the opening exhibition evening, I believe, October 18th. So it's quite a long period of making. Uh, So the goal of the residency will be... um, to open up my um, making to more collaborative processes. So um, bringing people in to the gallery and treating it more of a studio and a space for making rather than just purely exhibiting. Um, So throughout the residencies, I'll be asking um, female identifying, non-binary and members of the LGBTQ plus community um, to contribute materials, objects, photographs, and any verbal histories that they associate specifically with the idea of the souvenir. Um, I'm really interested in the concept of the souvenir, in particular, um, its relation to tangible memory and experience. Um, and of course, uh, with my own feminist approach to archiving and making, I'm asking how individuals in marginalized gender and sexual communities create their own personal histories um, and represent their own experiences. So through this uh, period of three months, I'll be um, working and collaborating actively with um, peoples in these communities um, and hopefully uh, creating a nice body of work that uh, can be shown in October. Of course, this is a very new way of making for me. Um, Generally speaking, I'm uh, pretty isolated in my process, but uh, just coming into my own understanding of um, queer identity, realizing that opening up my processes to a more collaborative uh, methods might 
um, be really beneficial. And so how do you envision the three months to be, how will it progress uh, in the terms of how uh, will you attract people to uh, contribute to the project? Mm -hmm. Um, The project right now is uh, very much in its, um, it's in its infancy stages. I have been starting to reach out to um, people, just being in the community myself, I've been reaching out to people I personally know, but um, of course I'll be working with Untitled Art Society. Um, I know they have like larger social media channels and um, reaching out in a more encompassing way in that sense. Um, but I'm hoping to bring people into the studio so they can see the space, talk about the project. I think that it's really important that people are in the space. They can see what's being made um, and give space to talk or write text or um, talk about their personal histories, experiences, um, bring in objects or materials to the space. I think that um, being an artist, for sure, uh, it's a lot of invisible labor and having something like a studio or a space to come into um, is really beneficial to artists, for sure. So, of course, appreciate UAS um, giving me this opportunity to um, create and collaborate in their space. And so how did you arrive at your um, your current state in your understanding of feminism and how it mm-hmm. how it is communicated to the broad public, I guess? Um, In terms of looking at my own practice, um, I went into my master's degree uh, feeling very lost about what I was doing as an artist. I wasn't really focused, but um, it wasn't until I started working with my family's photographic archive that I uh, became uh, more focused in my making. Um, I noticed when looking through my, uh, I have, my family has a massive, massive uh, photographic and newsprint archives. that there was a lack of representation of women and um, the accomplishments of the women in my family. So um, came to understand that the archive, um, particularly photographic archives, uh, very rarely show kind of underlying gender social biases and uh, how the archive can be used as a tool for oppression um, through omission, um, particularly against uh, certain gender and sexual communities. So I started examining my own archive, um, kind of disassembling and disrupting it um, through collage and uh, pulling out those kind of those uh, female figures and uh, reassembling these uh, photographs to offer new narratives uh, through alternative histories. Uh, So from there, I realized that if I wanted to continue talking about this from a feminist perspective, I wanted to go more outside of myself and my own family's history. And while I'll still, of course, be talking about that with this project, um, I wanted to um, speak with others in the community and um, talk about their experiences and um, their relationship to the souvenir. That's kind of the basis of the project is the idea of the souvenir and um, how we represent our own histories and experiences through object or photo or anything like that. Are you a collector in any way in terms of the idea of the souvenir that you prize objects that represent certain moments in history or time? Mm. Um, I mean, I've never really called myself a collector. Uh, I've always been drawn to photography, um, mostly work with uh, analog 35 millimeter or medium format. So, um, I mean, maybe I'm a collector of uh huge piles of unorganized film negatives for sure but um i i think that the photograph for me was a starting point thinking about this because the photograph we pull it out of the um our 
archival books or in a lot of cases look through our phones. And um, for us, it's kind of a tangible uh, representation of an experience or memory. We look back on photos to remember that time. Um, so that's when I started thinking about maybe not just a photograph, but how do other um, people in the community relate their um, experiences to particular objects. So souvenir is probably is kind of a encompassing term, but it doesn't necessarily have to represent like a trip. I'm more thinking about like object representing experience or memory. So the residency starts in July. And can you t tell talk about the exact dates again? And also, I guess, um, what you hope to accomplish from this uh, residency? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, so I'm moving into Untitled Art Society in beginning of July, so probably around July 1st. Um, the period of making and um, collaborating will be pretty much all of uh, July, August, September, with maybe two weeks dedicated to showing the work in an exhibition format with the opening happening October 18th. I have to double check those dates, but I'm pretty sure that's what we decided on. Um, and what I'm hoping to accomplished during that time is obviously with residencies, um, for those unfamiliar um, who are listening, an artist residency is essentially an intense period of making where you focus on making your work and generally you're given a studio and materials and supplies. And this is kind of a, these are more rare opportunities for artists um, to have time to just focus on our work. A lot of us, um, I mean, the invisible labor of artists, musicians, we're always working like three side gigs to support ourselves and support our practices. Um, so during this time, I really, really want to focus on bringing as many people into the um, residency and into the studios I can. And of course, I understand some of the collaborations aren't going to necessarily work. Um, but the point is to bring in as many people as I can, talk to them, um, and then work with them collaborative, collaboratively on making this work. Um, I've actually been working with someone so far. Um, uh, Natalie Vargas, she's a friend of mine and a female filmmaker, um, and we've been working on a film together um, that is kind of a lead up to this project. So, of course, using my own um, feminist ways of thinking through my lens-based practice, but also working with her in her own practice, which, of course, is film-based, um, particularly to talk about um, her learning about uh, her mom's struggle with immigration here. Um, and that's been so rewarding. And I hope to continue talking to people in the studio for those three months and uh, just making. And then at the end, of course, having a larger scale exhibition where everyone can come and see the completed work. And of course, this is a very experimental process for me. Um, so I think there is room for mistakes and there's definitely a room for failure. But the hopes and I, I know those things will happen, but the hopes are that at the end we'll have um some really fruitful collaborations and uh, some great work for everyone to come see. Thank you very much, Brittany, for your time today. Yeah, thank you for having me. Brittany Nickerson will be artist in residence at Untitled Art Society from July 6th to October 19th. The closing reception is on October 19th, 2019. Uh, Untitled Art Society is located at 343 11th Avenue Southwest. To get a sense of Brittany's photography, you can visit brittanynickerson.com. And for this month's musical interlude, I'm bringing you this cover of uh, the theme song for the show Fireball XL5, one of those old uh, shows that had the uh, Super Marionation, a la uh, Team America World Police and Thunderbirds. And uh, this is the Show Business Giants. 
Be a fireball, a fireball. Every time I gazed into your starry eyes, we take the path to Jupiter, and maybe very soon we cruise along the Milky Way and land upon the moon. Wonderland of stars, we zoom our way to Mars. My heart would be a fireball. From their 1995 album, Let's Have a Talk with the Dead, that was Show Business Giants and their cover of Fireball XL5. So this month, I'll be speaking to teacher, author, and podcaster Bruce Zawalski of the Boreal Wilderness Institute and author of the excellent book, Canadian Wilderness Survival. Here we go. Okay, Bruce, could you tell us about the Boreal Wilderness Institute, how long it's been around, and what it does? All right, absolutely. So the Boreal Wilderness Institute is a small outdoor education company located in Edmonton. And uh, for the last 25 years, we've taught modern wilderness survival, a little bit of bushcraft, uh, wilderness navigation, and wildlife awareness. And we teach both to the general public and um, to field workers, i.e. people that work in the, uh, in the boreal forest and in the mountains in Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, British Columbia, and sometimes into the north. Cool. Now, uh, I'm coming into this interview as someone who is kind of having a resurgence in their interest in bushcraft. And when I was mentioning this to someone I know, they asked, well, what exactly is bushcraft? Could you go over that? Well, I like to think of bushcraft as being taking the science of survival and then going in and using the natural environment even more. So, in other words, if I, if I taught about survival, I would teach you how to light a fire. But when you go into bushcraft, you'd learn first how to light a fire. And then you would look onto that as aspects, like, say, I'd like to learn how to light a fire using a bow drill, or I'd like to use learn how to um, build a shelter in with totally natural materials. Okay, so we're talking about just kind of upping your game the game and maybe changing the game a little bit in terms of if you're stuck somewhere and you're stranded, you can't really cheat. So you can use whatever you have. But if you're looking in a bushcraft scenario, you would want to do that and do it with as much natural materials as you could find or use or function with, like anything you could bring out of the wilderness to use. Okay, and that is a good dovetail into talking about um, your book, which is the, the reason I, I sought you out to uh, talk to you today. So you have written um, the Canadian Wilderness Survival Stop and Survive book, um, and I think it's great. And so I'd like to get into some details talking about your book and uh, some questions from, so, for some of your thoughts. Uh, first off is uh, the wilderness offers no guarantees. I, I like to use that idea that in spite of everything we bring with us and all the skills we have, you walk into a scenario and something could still go wrong. You could lose your gear. The weather could be lousy. Conditions can change. And there is no guarantees. And, you know, the more training you have, the more knowledge you have, the more stuff you bring in, the equipment you bring in, the better off you're going to be. 
But there is still no, in the end, whatever else we do, there is no guarantees that everything is going to turn out really well. Or, as I like to like describe it in terms of a, a scenario, one of the big things I can't guarantee is that you're going to be all right. And I always think of the worst conditions of food poisoning you ever had. So when you got food poisoning, what did you want to do? Well, generally, you like to curl up in a ball and die. Because when you have a bad case of food poisoning, that's how you feel. Well, now think of it as it being 40 below. And if you curl up in a ball, you may die or you will die. And that's what, those are the kind of things that make a survival situation really hard. It's not when it's really, really good. Because when the conditions are really good, literally, to me, all it is is a camping trip of limited gear. I like it that you don't use the word lost. Uh, you use the word in your book when trapped. One of the things to think about is that most times that people are actually trapped in the wilderness, they're not actually lost. Like darkness is one of our biggest factors. Can you imagine someone out hiking or hunting or fishing in the fall? I mean, you, we can get it'll be it'll often turn dark by five o'clock. And so, if you lose your trail or just simply know that you can't find the trail or follow the trail properly to get back to your vehicle and get home, you're not actually lost. You're just trapped. And that happens a lot with people in vehicle survival, where they're trapped in their vehicle mostly because they're trapped in the wilderness. They're not physically trapped in that vehicle, although it's a nice house to hide in, in some cases. It's still functionally that you're trapped because there's no way you're going to walk the 25 or 30 or 40 kilometers out. Another concept that you covered in your book is the idea of stop. Could you talk about that? Isn't stop. I mean, it is. A, it, it deals mostly with panic. Panic is a thing that causes a lot of people to get to to to, to, get, to get in trouble in the wilderness and also die in the wilderness. As a matter of fact, my mentor Morris Kohansky often talks about what he called panic-induced exhaustion. And stop is my way and many people's way of turning that around, which is stop, think, orientate, and plan. So stop what you're doing. Look around. Orientate yourself to the environment. What's actually going to be the problem? Because a lot of times we're responding to things that aren't actually wrong. We're not going to starve death for 30 or 40 days. So that's not relevant. So look around and what's, well, if it rains tonight, then it's going to get cold. So I'm going to need a shelter and I'm going to need some wood and I'm going to need eventually to light a fire. And I want to, if it's raining, I want to dry myself out so that I sleep well during the night. And that's what you have to do. Orientate yourself to make a plan, and then you're fine. And when we deal with stop, we're turning something around or turning something off, and normally that's panic. But that also can be fear, fear of the wilderness. We're in a culture that is very, very urban now. So being used to the wilderness or being at home in the wilderness is a little harder. I'm speaking with Bruce Zawalski of the Boreal Wilderness Institute and author of the book Canadian Wilderness Survival. Thinking of the car as being a little home, as you mentioned earlier, you offer practical uh, tips in your book about how to, you know, make a personal survival kit or a car survival kit. Um, could I get you to talk about that? And also, uh, I like what you said about the, um, the eat more bars. That was something that I never would have considered. Yeah, I, I think there's two things that we could really consider really important in terms of vehicle survival. And in reality, in all survival, which is clothing, right? So when I talk about that, I have a whole chapter in clothing. When I turn around to vehicle survival, 
the, the reason I'm talking about clothing first after we talk about physiology and psychology in the book is it's the most important critical item. And when you're in a vehicle, you're not carrying the weight. So you really don't have an excuse not to have it. Yeah. And my book, my is telling people is take a duffel bag of gear, you know, take an old sleeping bag along, take along a tube, take along gloves, take along a good jacket, take along a raincoat, take along a spare pair of socks so you can change into dry socks. Because last week I was out teaching navigation in Nordig and we got hit by a blizzard. And by the time we got off the mountainside that we were working on by the end of the day, everyone in that group was soaked. Right. And we were soaked because we had been up on the side of a mountain in a blizzard. And that's the conditions. And you can be stuck in a vehicle on our driving back. We um, our vehicles were fishtailing. They were on the gravel roads. They were not. We were driving 30 kilometers an hour to get out of the foothill, so to speak. And that's conditions that any one of us can get stuck in 12 months a year. I, uh, I like how you um, use um, case studies in your book. And uh, one of your podcasts, which we'll talk about a little bit later in the interview, um, talks about um, the story of McCandles. Oh, Christopher McCandless. McCandless, yeah. pardon me. Yeah, yeah. No, he's, a, he, he's an interesting individual because of his idea of going out to the wilderness. He just really um, took his training in the wrong area. I think that's the fundamental principle rule of what he did was he took his training in the southern United States and then tried to make that work in Alaska and in the north. And it's a different environment. The environment that we get outside of and west of Calgary or Edmonton is a far different environment than the um, southern United States. And that was really where you learn. And I think we learn best by understanding what others do. And that's why I mentioned I think it's seven or eight different survival scenarios trying to find good examples of what people did well and what they did poorly and also how they got stranded because it's a whole variety of different scenarios that we talk about. I talk about in the book and some people did really, really well and lived well and other people suffered a lot because they were not, um, they weren't prepared. Yeah, I think you make mention of uh, some guys that were stranded on an island and basically had to keep the fire going all, like their one thing was to try and keep the fire going because that's all they had. I, am I remembering that correctly? Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, no, no. And, you know, and often for a few days, um, there was uh, in the 90s, one of those sort of medium-term survival situations, which I sort of go as short-term being one to four days and medium being four to 40 days. And these three kids got uh, kept their... Um, fire going for 23 days Whoa. in late October into early November. And they survived and they survived quite well, but they did it because they could light a fire and build a shelter. And in their case, they also managed to scavenge the Island and find an old pot and a couple of uh, mugs. And therefore they were able to keep hydrated. One of the things we have to think about is that we, as you said, we don't control the environment, but we can control what we bring, what kind of stuff we take in terms of stuff like, you know, bringing a good survival life, most importantly, bringing the means to light fire, dressing properly, bringing clothing that you have to have, and bringing that extra stuff in your vehicle because you have the chance to do it. And then something as simple as something like a headlamp, a couple of eat more so you have a little energy to get you through the first few hours. 
Because those first few hours are going to be scary because we go from an environment where we have control of everything. You know, in, in a city, we feel like that we have control of everything that happens. And suddenly you're stranded or lost in the wilderness and you don't have that control anymore. And some of that stuff can just be really handy because you feel good. You know, you're back to having a little bit of a snack and you feel nice and you, your world will become certainly more half full than half empty. There are common misconceptions about some survival equipment. And one of them that you talk about uh, very well in your book is, um, what is what exactly is a reflective blanket meant to do and how to use it well? Right. So the reflective blanket is one of these things that's very misunderstood. And, and the reason is that the, um, the only reflection that we get is reflection in the light spectrum. Direct heat doesn't reflect. It, it could be absorbed the way it, a log cabin will absorb heat and then readmit that heat back out. But nothing in terms of a reflective blanket can only reflect something in the light spectrum. And so reflective blankets don't have a lot of use. But one of the things that I know Morse came up with, which is the super shelter, which I talk about a lot in the book, and you know, spread and, and put like fifteen or twenty pictures so you could actually build one. But one of the things it does is that reflective blanket on any kind of shelter. If you have a fire that's big enough and close enough, that and you put the reflective blanket behind you between basically, so it's you, the fire, then you, and then the reflective blanket. That reflective blanket will reflect light, but it will also reflect something else, which is more importantly, there is a form of heat in the light spectrum, and that's infrared. And so that infrared heat will reflect back. And a fire like the sun has a large amount of that infrared, and so it'll work. Where it won't work in the reflective blanket is if I put it three or four paces away on the other side of my shelter, as a, as a lot of people talk about reflecting walls, and they don't really work. You can build it as part of your shelter, but that's it. I see. And that's where you see people uh, using logs to make a reflective wall, right? Right. And they're trying to get a little bit of extra heat. And it does improve a shelter really, really slightly, but not a lot. And so that, 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 that reflector wall is a lot of work and, and you're not getting a lot from it. I think probably what happens more often is people get a little bit more protection from the wind. Right. And so therefore they think, hey, this is getting a little bit better. But it yeah. doesn't reflect. It'll reflect a little bit of heat back into the fire. But the fire generally doesn't need any heat. Well, and isn't gonna it's not gonna help it enough. It's gonna be a very, very small percentage increase where something behind you built into the shelter nice and close with a good fire going can make a big difference. And you can be an awful lot warmer for that. Now, you make the case in your book that uh, the super shelter, and I've experienced one myself, that the super shelter is the best thing that you can do for yourself if you're out in the wilderness. Um, could yeah, you? If, if you have that kilogram of material, and what I should explain to the to your listeners is you basically need three, three items or four items. One would be a parachute. Parachute uh, as a, or untreated nylon has a, a great ability in that it breathes, but it breathes rather slowly. And so it's a really good sh material for sealing up the back and sides and top of a shelter, not the front. And then the space blanket is put inside the shelter so it'll reflect a little bit of the heat back on you and the light, of course. And then the last thing is a very light piece of plastic, which we put in front of the shelter. And what that does is it 
stops the shelter from allowing any smoke or sparks inside. It would stop it would stop any wind from coming in. And because the shelter breathes out the back, out the back of the shelter through the parachute, not only do you get an air circulating, but slowly, so the shelter builds up a sort of a greenhouse effect, and it actually heats up. But what you also do is drive the moisture out the back of the shelter. So a fire is not only manageable one pace away from your shelter, but it's actually quite comfortable. And inside these shelters, you'll see in the book, there's a nice picture of it being um, uh, 27 above in a, in, a, in, a, in a shelter when it's 22 below outside. But I've been in them where I've been well over 30 above in temperatures where it's been close to 40 below. Now, I'd like to ask you this. Um, um, you were at the, uh, the International Bushcraft Symposium doing a talk on uh, the super shelter. How did that go? It went very well. One of the things I like to be able to do is build stuff hands-on. So we went to the woods and actually built the shelter. And, once, and one of the things you see in the book where I lay out on almost all the shelters, a minimum of four pictures, sometimes eight, saying this is step one, this is step two, this is step three, so you can clearly understand the steps. The, the ultimate part of that is when I'm able to take, in that case, I think it was groups of about 10 or 12 people each time, and we went out and built a shelter. Because once you build it and see it and, and people lie down inside it and, and they understand it, they suddenly are going, wow, this is really nice, this works. And they, 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 they get the concept. It's like that, that ultimate piece of, we can read about it, I can show it to you, I can talk about it, but the next step is doing it and doing that hands-on, and that's really handy. And that's why I, you know, I've, I've done those, I did those two sessions at the um, Bushcraft Symposium because there was a number of people from all over Europe and, and America who had, or Eastern Canada who had never really seen the shelter hands-on. Yeah, I, I was going to ask, I mean, you know, seeing people from all over the place, uh, uh, how many of them had seen one of these for the first time, do you think? And uh, how many people said something like, oh, I mean, I've been making these reflective walls all this time? Well, yeah, there was a lot. I mean, and, and the people I had, I don't think anyone had, a couple of people had sort of had looked at it, seen the concept, but they didn't really truly, they hadn't really seen it in terms of, yeah, that's what I have to do, or this is what I have to, or this is the way I have to build it. So they came up with a huge idea of, oh, I'm going to start building these now. <laughs> cool. And this is why they work, and these are the conditions they work in, because not every shelter works in every condition. The super shelter, if we built in summer, would be overkill. We'd probably just roast in the shelter. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, standing in a greenhouse. Yeah, well, no, it would be. And, you know, as you can see, a green, it wouldn't be very popular if it was 30 above already. Huh. Um, well, I guess this is a good a time as any to sort of um, address what we were just talking about in terms of, you know, practicing this. Because um, it, it, it was, it, it's a pleasure to practice bushcraft. And I did it in, you know, a controlled environment. Um you know, took a summer wilderness living course, went, you know, checked out the, uh, the International uh, Bushcraft Symposium. I'm just curious what you can tell people who want to go and practice this stuff on their own somewhere. Well, I mean, I think that if you're uh, responsible in terms of what you use in our crown land, then you have no problems. And what you have to understand, though, is crown land has different designations. So one of the hardest things for someone is to find out, well, where can I go and what areas are available to me as an individual? And then going out and responsibly 
digging a real digging a fire pit so you don't end up uh, creating a fire hazard, collecting dead wood and using it, building your shelters, trying the different styles out depending on where you are. You can go out there and do that, and that's completely acceptable. My suggestion is always to work as a team. There's teamwork does two or three things for you. It, it uses less resources because we can do one fire for maybe three or four people instead of one fire for one. Along with the fact that you have those extra people in case you run into some problems. Absolutely. Which means yeah. things go a little bit better. You know, you can carry a little bit more gear in just in case, and you don't have to worry about that. Right? That makes life a little bit easier. So I like to think responsibility of our training is to learn to walk before you learn to run. Right. And so, you know, building something like a super shelter might be something you want to try in the, in the fall, not in the middle of summer, because it, you don't need to build that shelter in summer. And, but building it in fall would be a little bit easier than building it at 40 below in the middle of winter for the first time. Can you describe what the boreal is to you? Yeah, well, the boreal forest is a very vast area. And as a matter of fact, you do get some boreal west of Calgary. But basically what happens for us is that boreal forest thins out. So when we get into the foothills of the Rockies, you have what we call the lower foothills, you're really still in the boreal forest. And unfortunately, as the farther south you go from Calgary, that area thins out. But the boreal forest is a, a vast circumpolar area. So it comprises... 50% of the province of Alberta, a vast majority of the land from Newfoundland and Labrador all the way west um, into um, southeastern British Columbia and then north all the way to the Beaufort Sea. And Newick, for example, is actually in the boreal forest. And it's an area of forest land with a lot of water. Uh, some of it in the west is more swampy. And in the east, there's the Canadian Shield or the rocky areas, which are a little bit more um, uh, pleasant to look at in pictures, uh, but not any better when the mosquitoes come out. And it's, it's, it's a vast forest area, so we get a varied mixed forest. We get a fairly um, vibrant animal community. And it's certainly in terms of bushcrafting materials, we get a really, really good selection of them. Maybe not quite as, uh, as, as big a selection of edibles as you would have in, um, in a jungle or in some other locations where we just don't, our forest doesn't have that. It has the vibrancy in terms of the number of things you might be able to eat, but not much of them in terms of the total biomass. So we don't get a lot of that. Okay. Um, and I uh, just was curious, I mean, do you, you and Moores, did you write about the boreal because this is where you kind of earned your bread and butter or grew up? I mean, if you were from Calgary, would it essentially still end up being about the boreal because of its massiveness and its relevancy to the size of Canada? Yes, it is. And when it comes to survival, the montane environment that we have, like west of Calgary and into the interior of British Columbia, is a very similar environment as well. Okay. So... I would have been writing the base stuff is the same and the base ideas in terms of survival are the same. And, and, and the, the difference will only be is if I'm farther up a mountainside, those trees are getting really, really small, which is the same thing they're doing when I get north of a place like Yellowknife and begin working my way towards tree line. So Bruce, you've been doing a podcast for some time now. 
Yeah, I think a little over three years now. And I usually, uh, the, the podcast is called the Canadian Outdoor Survival Podcast. There's links in the book. You can look it up. It's going to be anywhere podcasts are available, either directly at uh, canadiansurvival.info slash podcast or uh, through iTunes or any of the other podcast services. And what I try to do is do short podcasts. I like podcasts. But I like to keep the podcast short. So my podcasts are 15 to 20 minutes long. And I usually bring out about eight a year in any given year. And I try to cover one skill or one idea or do an interview with one individual about one aspect of what they do in the outdoor, in terms of the outdoor bushcraft and survival world. Yeah. And some examples of, of recent uh, podcasts that you've done is like considerations for West Coast camping uh, for fall. Um, you covered uh, the story of Christopher McCandless from an interesting perspective, as you mentioned on this show. Um, yeah, uh, I, I wish you all the best. Can you tell us what's coming up uh, with uh, possible podcast subjects? Well, yeah, there's two things, actually. Uh, the one I've been uh, working on, and I've just about got the script ready and probably have it out for um, in the fall, will be on uh, both the Mo- Montane Cordillera, or our mountains, so the southern mountains, and the boreal. And what I've been trying to do is like that West Coast one where I, 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 uh, I wanted to zero in on some very specific things in terms of the survival environment and what kind of resources and what kind of challenges you have. I, I have a little bit of that in the book, but I've been trying to go beyond that now and get, some, uh, get a little bit extra through the podcast. So I'm doing that. I'm also hoping this fall that I'll head up to uh, Piers and interview Morse for a podcast as well. That was my conversation with Bruce Zawalski of the Boreal Wilderness Institute. His book, Canadian Wilderness Survival, can be found at Campers Village if you want a physical copy in Calgary, but you can also check out www.boreal.net to order it online, and do please check out his podcast, the Canadian Outdoor Survival Podcast, which can be found at canadiansurvival.info. I especially suggest... Uh, checking out the Christopher McCandless episode. It was very interesting. Thanks for listening to Arslink this month. Talk to you folks again next month.